you know, let me just say this is a great church. I'm so glad to be a part of this church. Um, what we have here is very, very special. And churches like this. And uh, I want to touch a little bit on that tonight. Revelation chapter 3. Just going to read verses 1 to 6. The Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, said he that had the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, and thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are, ready to, uh, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come unto thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Then verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father God, I come before you. I ask you to help me now. God, I can't, I can't do what you can do. And I realize that more and more. I realize that, Lord, it's, 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 it's all about the whole preparation for this is all about prayer. So please help me, Lord. I beg you, Lord, just to help me uh, that our lives will be changed as a result of the foolishness of preaching. I ask this, and I thank you for these things. I pray you give me liberty. In Jesus' lovely name, amen. As we look at these churches, this is the church of Sardis, but there's, a, there's also other churches mentioned here. We go back to Revelation chapter 2. The first church mentioned is Ephesus. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, said he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And we understand Jesus is walking in the midst, and he is bringing these churches into accountability. And it's interesting, the name Ephesus actually means desirable, desirable. And that's just something I want you to take note of. Then the next church is found in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 8. It says, And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write these things, said the first and the last, which was dead and is, is alive. And Smyrna actually means bitter. Bitter. That's the actual meaning of the word. It means bitter. And you follow along, and in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, the next church and in the angel of the church of Pergamos write these things, said he which had the sharp sword with two edges. And Pergamos, Pergamos actually means marriage or compromise. So these names mean something for a reason. And then you go on, and the next church is Tatara, and that is in 2 and verse 18. And that church means continual sacrifice. That's what the meaning of the word Tatara is. And then you go on, and Sardis actually means remnant, remnant. That's what the meaning of the word means. And that's why it's connected to verse 4. There's a few names that have not defiled themselves. There's been a remnant that have been faithful. And then you go on to Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the only church that is not 
condemned. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And I love it. It means brotherly love. And then the last church uh, is kind of the church that we live in today. Laodicea. It means, it actually means Revelation 3 and verse 14. It actually means people's rights. People's rights. The type of church we live in today is, it's not what we can do for Jesus, it's what Jesus can do for us. It's the type of church that is modern day. That's the type of philosophy that is modern day church. But I want to go back to Sardis. It means remnant. And I love that, I love that idea. And the idea is this. There's a remnant that have been faithful down through the centuries. There's a remnant of people, Bible-believing Christians, that have said no to sin, that walked on through the fire, wherever it took, they lived their life faithful. There's a remnant. On Tuesday of last week, a woman walks into a printing shop in Drahada, looking to get some wedding invitations printed for her wedding. The owner of the printing shop realizes through the conversation that she is a lesbian. The owner of Beulah Printing politely refused her business and unashamedly tells her that they are Bible-believing Christians and they could not, in all conscience sake, carry out her request. See, there's a cost involved, isn't there? You know, we're living in a day and age where sin is open and acceptable for everyone. And there's got to be a remnant of people that will say, no, that's not right. We need to stand up for what is right, regardless of the cost. And it will cost. Let me look at this from three aspects. Let me look at first of a historical account from a biblical pattern and from a resolve to be like them. You look at history and you will see a faithful remnant. Let me say something about history first. History is, when you look at history and you look at history books, you're, you're always going to see some bias towards some direction. But you try to get to the truth. You try your best. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm trying to show you the best way I know how to get to what is true. What do I mean by a remnant? I, I believe, I believe uh, what I believe by a remnant is the silver card believers down through the centuries that have followed God's word outside of the established church. They weren't a part of the established church. They were outside, there were, there were groups, there were small groups, and they were faithful to God's word. Their only authority was God's word. Individuals that didn't compromise regardless of the consequences. Christians that have been faithful to their conscience down through the years. Let me show you 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Bible says this in verse 2. Would have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Their conscience was clear. They did what was right. And God used them in a mighty, mighty way. It is estimated, and this is just an estimation, this is what historians have said, that if you put all the, from the persecution, all the way into the Dark Ages, all the way to the Reformation, if you were to put a number on all the, all the lives that were wiped out, all the believers that were killed, you would come to about 50 million believers. 50 million believers perished through that time. That's just an estimation. That's what someone said. 
Let me give you a brief history, as best I know it. After the execution of Paul by Nero in 66 AD, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. When you get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, you're dealing with Paul's final letter. He's writing a letter, and it's his final... This is before he gets, ex- he, he gets put to death by Nero. And I like his attitude here. He says in verse 6, for uh, verse, verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and my time and my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. You know, that, that, that's a complete life. That's a life that's lived complete, and that's a life that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, you know, the worst thing they can do, the worst thing they can do is kill you. And Paul didn't fear death. Paul knew that for me to live is Christ, and as soon as I pass from this earth, I graduate. After the persecution, there was, there was estimated 10 layers or 10 waves of persecution all the way from, from Nero to Diocletian. Then in the third century, uh, Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity. And the Bible talks about in the Battle of Melvian Bridge in October 28, uh, 312 AD, that Constantine supposedly had a change of mind. He saw a cross above the sun and it said, in the, he saw the words, in, in this sign, conquer. And supposedly, supposedly, Constantine became a convert. But you know what? When you look at it in a spiritual understanding of it, it was really Satan changing his tactics. That's really what it was. Because after that, the, uh, the pure Christianity got polluted with all the other pagan practices. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and the Bible says in verse, in verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers be transformed into ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You know, Satan is, is very, very crafty. He persecuted the church, he persecuted the church, and the church began to grow, multiply, and it was said about the early Christians, they, they turned the world upside down. But then he changed his tactics. Then he said, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll make Christianity the state religion. Everybody will join. And what happened is, all the pagan influences, and if you ever want to understand the Catholic Church, you've got to understand it from a mixture of paganism and Christianity coming together. That's what it is. And listen, uh, you know, sometimes we're afraid to speak out, but you know, those Christians in, 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 the, in the dark ages spoke out and they lost their lives. Even, you think, uh, things like the wafer, the worship. You hold up the wafer up there, it's the worship of the sun god. 
the ador- adoration of relics, the worship of Mary, goes all the way back to Tower of Babel, prayer to the dead, all that stuff, all that paganism comes in, and all of a sudden, the pure Christianity is all compromised. Yet, there's always been a remnant that stood outside the established church. There's always been a remnant, and they always will be. They come from all different groups. They're called by different names. I know you've, you've had that booklet down the back, The Trail of Blood, and, you know, that's a good booklet to read. I, I, I remember reading it, and I didn't understand it the way I understand it today, because I believe it today. There was groups like the Abergensians, a sect of northern France, exterminated by the Crusades of the 13th century. There was the Donatists, a sect of North Africa in the 4th and 5th century, wiped out by the later Crusades. Then there was the Waldensians. They were were originally known as the Valdis, the dwellers in the valley. They were called called the Holy Ones. The word vastly changed, and it was eventually pronounced Waldensian. They lived in, in the Piedmont Mountain Valley of northern Italy and southern France. They were simple people. They were hardworking, faithful people. They were the very first true Christians and traced their beginning all the way back to the first century Christianity. So you'll see, you'll see that there's a remnant always faithful. Their motto was this, the light shines in darkness. Amen? The light shines in darkness. The darkness of the dark ages, their light shone. Amen? Then there was the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were a different breed altogether. Uh, they were rebaptizers. They, these believers didn't want to merely reform the church. They wanted to wholly restore it to its initial purity and simplicity. Uh, they originated in 1525. They were hated and persecuted by Protestant and Catholics alike. And that's where we come from. We're not Protestants here. We're Bible-believing Christians. Just like the, uh, you, see the, you see the remnant faithful all the way true. That's who we are. These groups were, had several things in common. They were most hated by the religious establishment. Let me show you 2 Timothy chapter 3. They were most hated by the religious establishment. Listen, if you're not hated by someone, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You want to do what's right, persecution will come your way. Listen, we don't, we don't experience persecution like the early Christians did, but uh, there should be some sort of persecution in your life. The only authority that they held to was the word of God. Only authority they held to. They didn't hold to a pope. They held to the authority of God's word, that book. They obeyed God rather than man. They stood unashamedly for Christ. As Romans chapter 117 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes it. To Jew first, also the Greek. They counted the cost, come what may. Did you, have you counted the cost? I mean, have you sat back and go, Okay, come what may, I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to cower away. I'm not going to be like Demas, having forsaken for the uh, love of the present world. I'm going to be faithful to the end. I'm going to walk on through whatever it takes. I don't care what's before me. I'm not going to quit. Have you resolved in your mind never to quit? Have you truly resolved in your mind? 
The remnant, though diminished, was always there. It was the basis of the great event of the 15th century, the Reformation. You know, a lot of us think it was it was Martin Luther and, few, and all of a sudden a few things happened like that, but it was way, way, way back when the Reformation began. It was people who stood up against the authority of the Pope and the Church and made a difference. The remnant was always there. It was, um, you know, it was called the Dark Ages because there was no access to, 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 to God's words. Uh, the Bible was in Latin and it was kept from the people. People like in the 11th century, like Peter Waldo of the Waldensians, John Whitcliffe, the Morning Star. What a man of God. In 1330, he translated the Bible into what's called Middle English and established the law lords. It was said at the time of, of John Wycliffe that if you were in England, you met two men, two men on the street. One of them was, was, was a, a follower of John Wycliffe. It was so amazing what he did. Uh, John Wycliffe was so effective that after his death, 43 years after his death, they dug up his bones and pronounced him as a heretic, excommunicated him, and burned his bones. And then they, they, they took those, those ashes and they put him into the river. And one historian says this. One historian said, thus the brook, the brook had conveyed his ashes into Avon, even into Stern, Stern into the narrow sea, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are an emblem of his doctrine which now is dispersed over the whole world. Amen. Amen. They couldn't, they couldn't describe his doctrine, amen? Because you can't stop God's word. You cannot stop God's word. And men like Wycliffe, John Huss, and people like that were faithful. They were the remnant to the darkest of times. The remnant. A hundred years later, God was preparing a man by name William Tyndale. And, you know, uh, Tyndale was burdened to, to put the Bible in the English language. That was his burden of his heart. He saw, he saw all the people around him, and he saw they, they couldn't understand the Latin. And he was burdened. He was influenced by a, name, a man called Erasmus of Rotterdam, and Erasmus produced the 1516 Greek-Latin New Testament. And he took it from the Greek, which uh, was a, an amazing thing. It is the basis of the Tyndale English Bible. It's the basis of Luther's German Bible. One evening, Tyndale was talking to this priest, and the, uh, the priest would say, say, say one thing, and Tyndale would come up with scripture and say something else. And the priest would say something else. And Tyndale would say, with the Bible, scripture says this. And the, po the, the priest got so upset that he said, he, sa he said, uh, I'd, I'd rather have God, I'd rather have the Pope's laws than God's laws. In which Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare me my life or many years, I will cause the boy that drive with the plow to know more of scripture than thou dost. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. That was the fire of the Reformation. Later on, Luther comes along and, and uh, nails his 95 theses onto the wall and the Reformation takes place. But if you look back, the Reformation began way back, way back, of a remnant who were faithful to live by that book. 
and they changed the whole course of this world, the Reformation. The Tyndale Bible was, uh, uh, was burned, or Tyndale was burned as a heretic. His last dying words were these, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And I know you all this, I know you know all this, but it's good to refresh your minds. And later on, we have the succession of Bibles. We have the Great Bible, uh, we have the Geneva Bible, all the way to the King James Bible. 47 men, uh, godly men, uh, men of scholarly, uh, of, of incredible minds, took that Bible in and, and, and humble men and from uh, three different schools, from Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge, and they carefully translated. And God was preserving his word for us today. And by 1769, you basically have what we have in our hands today, the King James Bible. Amen? And listen, we ought to cherish it. This should be gold to us. should be gold. God always has a remnant. Did you know that 75% of, at least 75% of Tyndale's influence is in, is, is in this book? It is amazing what, what God has done. And let me also look at this from a biblical pattern. A silver card of a remnant is even weaved through the pages of Scripture. As you look through that Bible, you'll see a silver card of believers, faithful remnant that are faithful. The first 11 chapters deals with, deals with man in general, and then God zeroes in on one man, Abram, which becomes Abraham. And later Moses and all the people. But do you ever wonder why God chose Abram? Let me show you Psalms 14. No, it wasn't because... The, the Calvinists would believe this. The Calvinists, well, God sovereignly chooses people and God sovereignly just uh, brings, calls certain people for certain things. And uh, listen, that's not true. Let me tell you what, what, how God looks at man. Psalms 14 and verse 2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Then it goes, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that do a good, no, not one. Verse 5, there were they in great fear, for God is the generation of the righteous. God looked down on Abram and said, that's a man that's trying to do right. And God used that man because Abraham sought the Lord and God sought him. That's the way God uses people. When you seek the Lord with all your heart, what does it say in Jeremiah 29, 13? That if you seek me, you will find me with all your heart. God is faithful. He wants you, though, to seek him most of all. And you will see a remnant that are faithful through the pages of Scripture. People like Samuel, David and his mighty men, Elijah and Elisha, uh, uh, standing up against Baal worship. Elijah was... And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, you'll see a remnant that are faithful. Daniel, uh, all the major prophets. And then you come to the New Testament, you have a lone voice. You have John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. You have John the Baptist faithful uh, in the wilderness. You have the ministry of Jesus himself, the twelve disciples. Just a small remnant, how God can use that small remnant. To a time of great falling away, go to John chapter 6. You know, every true believer will be tested. You will be tested. I will be tested. And you know what? Testing is good. 
It's not nice, but it's, it's good for us. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is very, very popular. His ministry, everybody is following him because he can do miracles. And it is amazing. Everything is going so good. Then Jesus tries, Jesus changes the tune a little. We get to John chapter 6 and verse 53. The Bible says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat my flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eat my flesh and drink my blood had eternal life, I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 60, because of these hard sayings, the Bible says in verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? There's confusion going on. Confusion going on. Then in verse 66, from that time, many disciples went back and walked no more with him. I love what, what, what Jesus does here and what he says to Peter. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will he also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where, where in the world can you go? <laughs> you know, uh, it's wonderful to realize that there's only one place, and that's right in the center of God's will. Right in the center of God's will. You will find that there's a remnant that are faithful all through the ages. Uh, a time of the great falling away, uh, to the, the Apostle Paul blazing a trail, three missionary journeys and journey to Rome, even after the church is raptured, there's still a remnant in the world. There's 144,000 male virgin Jews that will evangelize this world. God always has a remnant right throughout the page of the scripture, even when the church is gone. Because God, God always has a remnant that are faithful, regardless of the time they live in. And then, let me talk about the last thing, about a resolve to be like them. You know, that's my resolve, to be like them. You know, a lot of times people want to be... Let me keep track of the time. A lot of times people want to be successful in life. You know what we should be? We should, we should desire just to be like a faithful remnant that are following our Savior, no matter what. Come what may... Whatever takes place, uh, however the rug is pulled out from underneath you, you need to be faithful to God and walk with him through the narrow way. We live in a day and age where there's a great compromise within the church. Jesus describes this in the parables of Matthew chapter 13. Let me just show you there, Matthew chapter 13. A lot of times, these parables, Jesus reveals truth in parables. If you can imagine, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is rejected by, 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 by his own people. And in Matthew 13, you have a period that Jesus talks about that will happen, and it's happening in our day and age. In Matthew chapter 13, he gives three parables that are important. The first is in Matthew chapter 13, talking about the wheat and tares. It says this in verse 24 of Matthew 13. And their parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in the field. But when, while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blades were sprung up 
and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. Listen, you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares, but you will know them by their fruit. Amen? Amen? It's the fruit that's produced in the life. You look, you look at faithful men that follow that book. You see the fruit that's produced from it. I mean, think of all the, the, the godly men that have lived by the year of that book. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, uh, the, the revivals that have taken place because of the fruit of that book. Absolutely outstanding. What about the parable of the mustard seed? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 13. Uh, verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which is a man took and sowed in his fields. Which is indeed is, is the least of all seeds. Let me try to interpret this as best I know how. The, the mustard seed is the small remnant of the church. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs. And then it says, And becometh a tree. It becomes something unnatural. It becomes something it was never meant to be. And then it says, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. What are birds? Birds in the Bible are always unclean. And the thing is, this thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you will see from Constantine, when Constantine makes uh, Christianity the state religion, you see how it gets polluted. How big it gets, but polluted it gets. You've got to get back to the simplicity that's in Christ. Amen? I'm thankful for this church because what you have in this church is the simplicity that's in Christ. Amen? Clear teaching of God's words. Parable of mustard seed. And let me show you one more. The parable of the three measures of leaven. Matthew 13 and verse 33. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. You know what Satan wants to do? Satan wants to put a bit of leaven in there. He wants to get a, put a leaven in there. You know, there's, there's three types of leaven that I think of. I think of personal leaven that I bring into the church. But you know what preaching needs to do? Preaching needs to preach that out of, out of me. Preaching needs to be in my face, dealing with my sin, so that the leaven doesn't get into the church. And then there's religious leaven. Religious leaven is that leaven that gets in there from the traditions and from different things. Jesus said this, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like them. And then there's, there's doctrinal leaven. You've got to be careful of that as well. You know what, what this church is about? Right doctrine. Uh, I realize as a pastor, you need right, solid doctrine. You need to believe in eternal security of the believer. You need to believe in the second coming, that the rapture is, a, is the next event that will happen to the church. Not the tribulation, the rapture. Certain key doctrines will keep you, keep, keep you right. You know, it's wonderful, but Paul was looking for Jesus in his day. Shouldn't we be looking for him in our day? Shouldn't we be, as a church, desiring to see the appearing of Jesus, the rapture of the church? Shouldn't we desire that? That will keep you pure. Amen? Keep you in love with God. Keep you where you know he's coming. Jesus said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Well, let me tell you, the way is less traveled. The way of the Christian, of the remnant, is less traveled. The truth is always unpopular. Always unpopular. You know, it's amazing. Um, you, you preach the truth. You're never, going to be, uh, you're never going to have the multitude following you. It just doesn't happen doesn't happen. Let me show you a scripture though that will encourage you. John chapter 18. 
This is the scripture the Lord gave me many, many a time ago. And I always think about it when I'm preaching something that it might be more difficult. John 18, the Bible says this in verse 37. Jesus is talking to Pilate. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, and that I should bear witness unto the truth. Look at the last part of this, right? Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So, you know, as a pastor, all you do is speak the truth. And it's those that will hear the truth will respond to you. That's why we say amen. Amen? So the preacher preaches, and the person in the congregation goes, amen! You know what that means? That was right. That was right. I agree with that. And that's what preaching is. Preaching the truth, come what may. The remnant is always going to be small, but is the resolve to follow their Savior, come what may. You know, you think of all the things that, all the way Satan is able to get in, and all the way uh, things happen, and all of a sudden the rug is pulled out. It's easy, to, it's easy. It's so easy to compromise. It really is. That printing shop in Drogheda could have easily compromised. I spoke to him over the phone. I said, you know, what, were you tempted to compromise? He said, yeah, big time. But they couldn't for conscience sake. Because uh, God would, knew, would know. The individuals that are true to God's word during heavy trials are those that become his remnants. Those that are tested and are faithful. You will find that there is a silver card of believers that have lived outside of the establishment down through the ages. From a historical account, you will see men and women that are faithful. Uh, I can only imagine Tyndale just translating the Bible uh, probably in a cold place, probably just just, just uh, spending hour upon hour, just working away because he knew what a great resolve it would be. Um, yet it is, it, is a, it is a decision each of us has to come to individually. You know, you know what makes you part of the remnant? It's not, it's not being part of an independent Baptist church, even though independent Baptist church is a good church. What makes you part of the remnant is a decision to follow Jesus, come what may. Amen? Come what may. That's what makes you part of the remnant. Being uh, you, you become a part of the remnant when you decide to follow Jesus, regardless of the cost. When you set your course to live for him, regardless whether anyone follows. You know, we sing that song, you, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. Uh, no turning back, no turning back. Then it goes, uh, if, no one, if no one's going to follow me, am I still going to follow Jesus? If everybody gives up, if Dan gives up, <laughs> if Tony uh, throws in the towel, if everybody quit, am I going to still follow Jesus? Think about that for a second. You know, we want to make a commitment, a resolve, a, 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 a promise to the Lord. I'm not going to quit. Let me show you Revelation chapter 3 and we'll be finished. Revelation. The Bible says in verse 4, Thou hast a few names 
even in Sardis, which have not defiled our garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Are, are we truly resolved to follow him, come what may, regardless of anything that, can, that goes on in our lives? Because, you know, there's not one of us here that hasn't felt like quitting. Not one of us. If you're honest with yourself, you felt like quitting more than once. If the, the deeper you get into walking with your Lord, the deeper you, 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 you try to do something for him, the easier, the more you feel like quitting. But you know, when you resolve never to quit, you, you, you never will. Because there's, there's something inside there that says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's stand, or let's stand please.